The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Welcome to Ask Alex, episode 190 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on the OneOuter.com website and also via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at OneOuter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, we had a week off, hiatus, you are back. This is episode 190. How are you doing? What's going on? I'm doing splendid. How are you doing, Barry? Yeah, I'm doing great as well. You know I'm not, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, well, one thing about you, Barry, you're only sick like seven out of nine weeks, so it's not a big deal when it does happen. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's weird. I think it's maybe just like a psychological thing about doing the podcast again. It's maybe just like, <laughs> uh, no, nah, I'm joking. Uh, no, it's a little bit of, my little brother came up to the house to see me and he was coughing and spluttering, and I said to him, you know, I say my little brother, he's 29 now? I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, 29. And he's coughing and spluttering. He'd been out fishing, he popped into mines for a cup of coffee, and I said to him, are you okay? He's like, oh, a bit of a cold, and I'm like, oh, great. You know, and then literally the next day, I could just feel it creeping over me. And then I was phoned my mum, and she says she's been bad with it, and I'd been down to see her as well, so... Yeah, I think it's to do with, like, the kids are all back at school now. Um, you know, one of my youngest brothers just started secondary school, high school, and uh, it's all spread around, and there's, like, you know, lots of kids and aunties and mums and granddads and everything. So, and I, I, everywhere I've been, people have had it. I had a problem with my car, went in, mechanic was coughing and spluttering, and uh, people at the post ah. and everything. So, yeah, it's just, like, we've had a great summer here, and the temperature's dipped slightly, so all our Scottish immune systems uh, have all, like, that's it now. We're open to everything. We've been lulled well, into a summer, and then now it's, like, dipped slightly, you know, and everyone's struggling. At least you know what it is. Something that happens with me, I used to be very judgmental of people that got sick a bunch of the time, and then I had a time I just wasn't well. Uh, I was probably not taking as good a care of my body, and I... You can just get a low-level cold like nothing when you're doing that. But the thing I've noticed now is now I'm back to my old immune system. And, like, I haven't been sick in a year. And everybody knows I don't get sick. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I I never don't show up for things. And I don't get sick in general. But I think what ends up happening is people like that that say they never get sick. I think what happens is you do get sick. You just 
it doesn't come out in the form of a cold. It's just like, why am I so depressed and downtrodden for these six days? And if it came out in the form of a sniffle, I think that would be a little healthier. Or, hey, I got a little bit of a sore throat, but I feel like now that I'm in a little bit healthier condition, I feel like I just internalize it a little bit more and I push myself to work. Yeah. I don't know if that's good either. I, I don't begrudge you for showing up here and saying, like, yeah, I got a little quiver in my throat. It, it'd be one thing if you weren't showing up every other week, but the fact you do show up and it's just a minor thing and nobody would notice if you didn't say anything. Yeah, nobody would notice if I didn't show up either. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, the thing, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I think it's just a mind-body connection, like, I only mention it now for a laugh, and so do you as well, because it kind of became a, you know, a regular occurring theme. Like I would either be sick or you would be sick. We take turns. And uh, the thing is, it's it's probably you know when you're doing things like that, a little bit more stressful, etc. It definitely lowers your immune system. I mean, there's studies on that, and you're more susceptible to like lots of stuff. So. If you're running a little bit of stress for you know a period of a few weeks or months and it's accumulating, then it's going to take its toll. But yeah, like you say, your body, if you're in a bit better shape physically or you're internalizing it differently, like you say, you could just be feeling a bit, why am I feeling like this? Oh, it must be my mind or mental. It could just be your body causing that mind. You know, like you've got a little virus that the, the symptom of this virus is you feel a bit depressed for like seven to ten days, you know, and then it passes like, like it normally does. But... Yeah, I was I was funny. I can't remember who said it on Twitter. It, it wasn't poker guy or something. I think it was some trading guy I follow or something on Twitter. He posted something the other day. Oh no, it was a travel guy about Vegas and a podcast. He says if you do a podcast, don't talk about politics uh, because straight away you're dividing your audience in half. You know, you'll never make one half happy and the other half won't be. And sometimes you can isolate, you know, listeners. People come to podcasts for escapism and entertainment. So I'm just laughing that we're, like, we're talking about illness and that now. Is that acceptable rather than politics? <laughs> you know, that probably, that probably like, isolates 100% of the people. <laughs> you know, well, like, boy, we could have used that politics memo way back when on 2012. Yeah, that horse is bolted. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, I remember the first conversation we had, we were talking about there's more states in the Union... Yeah. of the United States of America where flamethrowers are legal than online poker and marijuana combined and yeah. how ridiculous we thought that was. I think and, we are left with just, uh, I think I checked my, our last demographic listeners and it is now 99.8% Trump uh, voters now that listen to the one out of com podcast. <laughs> so we've succeeded. We've got the guys we want. You know, you're all welcome. <laughs> I I, I, I've talked to a lot of really liberal people I, I, I've always found our audience to be really diverse, which always made me really proud when I met them because just being a knucklehead white dude. Now, my girlfriend is not white, and there's a number of times I say something and then she'll tell me something. I go, wow, I've had a blind spot there my whole life. You mean other – you mean so – one thing about being a six-foot white dude, if you say something, people listen. I didn't realize a lot of times – other people will talk and they'll just like talk over you or not listen to you, right? I didn't realize those things happened, but yeah, 
the fact that we can present a product that appeals to everyone makes me proud because I think that takes a level of emotional intelligence that I did not possess even a few years ago. The other thing I was going to say, going back to mind-body connection, because that's a very running topic on this show, because like you said, we used to always have problems with sickness and stuff like that. I think it's also a high arousal thing. Like you might not actually be stressed out, but if you're doing a lot of things, I was just burned the hell out after this trip. I went to, I went to in the same week, I went to a wedding. I visited my grandma, visited my uncle, visited my stepdad, my mother, my sister, my stepmom, and I met my Brazilian brother for the first time. And the wedding was great, but just very different people than I know. Like, I didn't know any of them when I went in. And you, you, you have to be careful about what you say. Bringing it back to politics, you don't know which one of your views is going to set off somebody. So you find yourself picking your words very delicately, not cussing all the time. Uh, something Barry and I, <laughs> Barry just lets fly here, but we're even worse uh, away from the podcast. And just picking your words gingerly and always having to make sure you're presenting yourself well all the time, that takes, that, that, that takes time. And then even seeing my family, I've known, obviously I've known my family all my life. It's still, it's a very, it, it takes a great deal of energy, just all the social interaction and everything and catching up and then remembering, oh, you know, <laughs> uh, the, it, it keeps coming back to politics. The political situation in this country, Barry, is so crazy right now. It's, but like, yeah, remembering, okay, grandma's a Democrat, so be careful what you say there, right? And trying to be as congenial as possible. And then, Anyway, I came home from New York, and I mean, I came home to New York, and just for the first six days, I was flat on my ass. And I think, I think just any time you're doing a lot of stuff that's not within your routine, your your body gets. It, well, you think of like early Homo sapiens. If their routine was being interrupted, that probably meant they were under attack. Their hunting ground was being lost. So it probably puts you on high alert. And if you think about meeting people for the first time, that used to be a very dangerous process for er early humanity. That probably meant you were meeting another tribe, and that person was just as likely to attack you as to want to work with you. And for that reason, your body, which was in this hunter-gatherer state for hundreds of thousands of years before the last 2,000, 3,000 of slightly more advanced society it still has this cortisol injection that it spreads through you when you meet new people. So I think you just get drained. And I think in that case, you know, in work can take this form. I know you've been working a lot and probably working with people maybe you weren't as familiar with now uh, before and now much more so. It just drains you. And if there's any bug going around, it's just going to take you down at that point, which is, I almost consider working out now. Dennis Peterson calls it training. He doesn't, he got that from somebody. He never calls it working out. He says, I'm training, yeah. right? 
He's doing his kettlebell swings. He's training. That's the UK thing as well. It's in oh. Scotland, a lot of oh. people say that. Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I guess, I guess that could be a Canada thing too. But no, I think he, he, he even said like, I like that word because it gives you the idea of after you work out, you should have some energy. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't just completely flatten you because if you do that. You're just not going to have energy. You're just not going to want to do it three, four times a week if that's how you are. Uh, The other thing is it's supposed to be training for life. I I had no idea. I've struggled with depression my whole life. I had no idea how much physical fitness fits into that. Like if you get eight hours of sleep, let me see if I can remember all the things I've done. Eight hours of sleep, fish oil, sea sun every day work out every day, do not ruminate, try to keep busy, try to have really good interpersonal relationships where you're talking with people. I, I just found when I put all those things together, magically I wasn't as sick, I, I, I felt much better, but it's so hard to do all that stuff in one day, don't you think, Barry? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to like not beat yourself up sometimes when people do that and they... they it's too much to accomplish and sustain for a long period of time. Eventually, it's like spinning plates. Sometimes one, you know, eventually you lose track and something, you start struggling to maintain all that. You know, I think it's prioritizing things. But going back to the politics thing and the reason with that and, you know, the sort of tying it in, it's, I think it dawned on me the other week, the reason I don't have a problem, you know, like when you say, like, as a white male six foot, you don't appreciate the point of view of, uh, you know, your partner, your girlfriend or whatever. And I, I had a kind of an epiphany like that you know, about a year ago as well. And it was like, yeah, it kind of dawns on you. And that goes back to just like living life through your lens and you really only know. You don't know what it's like to live life as a, you know, a 40-year-old black woman that's unemployed yeah. and the way she's treated when she goes places, etc. And I think, but like a weird way, you know, when people say, it goes back to that, I couldn't care less what someone's political persuasion is, as long as they're not hurting anyone, you know? Yeah. So, like, I'm not out to convince someone that has a different view from me. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't care less. <coughs> Excuse me. I, want, I don't have the energy, for one. And two, mm. there's too many people to change. Like, you know, if you're going to live your life like that, you're not happy till you've changed everyone to think in the same way you do. Like, there's no way you can win that game. So I, I don't care. Like I think people get stressed and people get problems and politics breaking arguments is when they try and change the opposing person's views by, mm. by arguing a point rather than just listening and going, all right, that's why you think like that. That's interesting. Like We just think differently. I think this way. You know? Okay, you know, and accepting it for what it is. As soon as you try and give a push and they push back, that's when problems start. You know, like, at, you know, at an event, or you're talking about someone, and, you know, a drink's flowing, and before you know it, this guy's like, well, actually, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, people, don't write in. Um, you know, your current president, Donald Trump, or at least he was at the time of recording this podcast uh, today, when we started, he was still president. Um, <laughs> you know, that might change shortly, I don't know. Um, but in, it's like, say, someone guy goes, oh, you know, Trump's doing this and that, you know, it's terrible. And then some guy goes, well, actually, he's done that, you know, whether you like him as a person, this has been achieved. Oh, but how can you say that? This and you're like, well, I'm not trying to, and that's when the problems start, when you try and either yes. justify your views or fight the other person's point by going, no, that's wrong because this, 
not just going, it's fine to think differently. Like, I'm not out to convince anybody. You know, it's like, you think differently, all right, okay, fine. You know, all the problems start when people start bickering, arguing, trying to change the other person to that side. Like, no, this is right, you shouldn't do that. Come and stand here with me. You know, come and stand here with us. That's when problems start. Because what you're doing is you're attacking someone's belief system. Whether it's right or wrong in your eyes, it's right for them. It's what they believe. And that is when true problems start, you know? Well, and as a libertarian, I get the distinct joy of being hated by absolutely everyone in any of these conversations because I don't align myself with either side of the political aisle in the United States. And one of my beliefs is that everybody is allowed to believe whatever they want as long as they do not hurt others. It's not my business. It's not my feelings (coughs) about anything are not really your business. Not I don't have the right to impose my judgments on your life unless you're hurting another person. What you want to do with your body is up to you. And I, one of the things I believe is everybody should be allowed. I'm really into small government, and everybody should. The original idea behind the state system in the, in the United States was if you're super liberal you and all your friends can go to a liberal state, do whatever you want, and in another state, they can do whatever they want, right? And nobody hurts anyone. Mm -hmm. And that's it, right? And then we got away from that. And I'm with you, which is just, it's not my responsibility to take care of your life in a way I see fit, especially when I could have glaring blind spots. And... Like you said, it's all the, I have to change another person. Well, no. Uh, Getting older, you realize you're not really going to change a lot of people, right? If there's someone young who looks up to you, then in that time, it might be okay to have a little discourse about what you really think could guide them in a successful manner in life. But, yes, I... I find people just rush into the argument so fast now, too. Do you hear that? And it's Yeah, uh, every day about anything. I mean, I don't know how people have got the energy. It's crazy. I said that the other day. I was going, what is it now? And it's about this. And the next day, this celebrity said that they should be, you know, attacked and quit everything. And they're they're now, you know, cancelled, to use the common phrase. And you're just going, people need to start focusing on what they can control, their own families, their own individual preferences and actions, rather than focusing on social media and Twitter and in the news about this person said that and this person said this. It's just one big distraction. It's complete insanity to me. I just, I don't get it. I just don't think, you know, I, I don't get it. I don't know how people have the energy to spend hours Yes. Arguing something on Twitter about, you know, anytime I put something on Twitter and there's a slightest bit of pushback or a thing, I'll maybe spend like one, two tweets, that's me, and then that's me done. I just stop responding to anything and stop. It's just like, it's not it's not worth it. It's, I, I've come to accept that what I offer people is, I, I'd like to think slightly more intellectual escapism which is if you can't realize you work really hard at a poker game and you can get better at that, hopefully you will translate that to other parts of your life. Now, what I'm really good at is giving you simple things you can work on that will improve your poker game, which will hopefully 
increase your confidence and will allow you to make changes in other parts of your life. But I, I understand what I do is a service and I have to take my personal views out of it. And to, but I do get worried to take this back to mental health. When you look at your cell phone, that's a dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've proven that's a dopamine hit. And you think, what else gives you a dopamine hit? Well, drink a little alcohol. And you think about what, what do people do the first thing they do when they wake up? They open their cell phone. Could you imagine waking up and being like, oh, let me grab this Heineken and drink it? Now, uh, now obviously, it's not exact because there's far less of a chemical component to the smartphone as there is to the Heineken. But there, it's also not true to say there is no chemical component. And I think what actually happens when I was reading a paper the other day, because I'm a nerd who does those things, uh, and they, there was a lot of doctors saying what they think depression is, is, is really people who have a pronounced stress response. And stress was created to help you in the hunter-gatherer stage of our species mm-hmm. to keep you alive. So what happens when you're in this high arousal state of stress. Well, you don't, uh, you, you don't sleep that well. You sleep <clears> very lightly. And uh, that's so you can wake up in case a saber-toothed tiger comes nearby. Uh, you, you kind of get into fight or flight whenever you speak with someone. You're ready to fly off the handle because that used to save your ass. That would keep you alive. And the way it, they think it shuts down is... When you exercise, that tells your brain, like, okay, we're running, we got out, we lived, right? Everything's back to normal. And what really scares me is how many people I've met who say gleefully, as if this were an option, I do not exercise, period. That, imagine putting a dog in a room and just shutting the door every day. What is that dog going to do? The dog's going to literally chew on itself. And you'd like to think you are much smarter than that animal, but you are still a mammal deep down. And, it's, and what I get really worried about is when people are feeling those stress hormones fill them. And the way they could really deal with that is a walk through the park, uh, taking their dog for a walk, running, playing tennis with their friend, a stroll with their partner. Instead, what they're doing is they're looking at their phone, and that little dopamine hit gives you just a little bit of a way out. It gives you, it lets you stall it just for 45 seconds. It kind of, just like when you're really stressed out and you smoke a cigarette and you feel great, like just for a second, but then it goes away. I think it's that, and the problem is, I think if you get, there is a joy to hating the other side. Tribalism. I think does give us an adrenaline rush. Like, I'm better than this other person. Oh, look at this person. Get it. You can see it in the YouTube videos. Watch so-and-so get destroyed. This clapback from a Denmark uh, politician just leaves the person in shambles. It's, it's very, you know, because now we don't fight on the outback. Now we don't fight in the Grand Plains. We got to fight over YouTube. We got to fight over Twitter. We have to fight over Facebook. And really, all that is is your body wanting to move, wanting to be what you were supposed to be, which is 
humans have made incredible evolutionary sacrifices to be able to walk five, ten miles a day. And we instead just sit at our computers and drink our double-tall latte with the three shots, which is really just a milkshake of sugar going into our ass and keying us up, and then we don't do anything. And Yeah, I honestly, sometimes, Barry, I feel like this is mental illness. Every time I look at Twitter, I'm, you want to know what mental illness is, this is it. Yeah. And I refuse to participate. Sorry, you were saying something? No, I, I find it difficult. I could be open enough to admit that, don't get me wrong, a lot of the stuff I'm looking at on my phone is constructive. I'm maybe checking through things like researching and whatever, but it's still the same thing. I then find myself down a rabbit hole sometimes on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or whatever. You know, it is. It's true. It is an escapism. People, you find that, you know, let's look at the phone. It's easier to look at a phone than the person next to you sometimes for some people. You know, just Mm -hmm. things like eye contact and whatever. And you stand in shops now, queues. I've said this before. You know, if you're waiting on food somewhere, like takeaway or whatever, I used to normally stand and speak to people. Now every person is standing on their phone. It's just, yeah. But anyway, I feel we're going to get on a um, more of a. I'll, I'll come down off this high horse. More of a tangent, and we're about twenty-four minutes in or something. I can't remember what time we started uh, recording. <laughs> so uh, yeah, if you wanna, you wanna wrap it up. Uh, I'll wrap it up. Just just live your life and don't try and convince anybody else that your way is right. That'll be my thing. And then we can go on with questions after Alex has wrapped it up. So wrap it up, Alex. Yeah. Non-violence. And that, that's it. Oh, Taxation okay. is theft. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Make America great again. Yeah, okay. Uh, right, all right. Let's get into the questions. <laughs> Uh, let's get to, it's funny for me because I don't live there and I'm in Scotland. Uh, that's why. I'd be laughing if you lived in this city, but no, I, oh I know, I know, I know. Oh um, my God! Anyway, continue. Okay, uh, first one is just a nice letter, in, so I'm going to read that out. This one is from Omi, and we have interesting conversation about poker in the future. One show that featured poker multiple times and was integral to the plot in several episodes including the series finale, was Star Trek The Next Generation. The game featured five-card studs with chips. In another episode, one person traded his gambling wins for information from the casino owner. Deep Space Nine also... Wow, this is... Well done, Naomi. This is getting... (laughs) Deep Space Nine also had a bar casino scene on the space station. It was some made-up game, but looked a lot like roulette funny thing about Star Trek, they were the opposite of dystopian. Granted it was in the 80s, 90s before the Hold'em craze, but I have found Star Trek has been a pretty good predictor, inspiration for future technology, from mobile phones to tablets, from voice-activated computers to one of my favourite future predictor, wearable video game becoming addictive, just like everyone with their phones today. Ah, see we tie it in when we don't even mean it here at the one hour show. That's why you Um, make the big fuck, Derek. Continue. Anyway, enough geeking out for one email. Thanks for the podcast. It's always fun to listen to. Have a great week off. And actually, he's just reminded me, the most recent Star Wars as well. There was gambling scene in that, the casino. They had to go to the casino and deal with this guy that's gambling and that. So, yeah. Thanks for writing in, Omi. Uh, I'm not a huge Star Trek fan. I've never really watched any Star Trek or that. Although, um, I was always more Star Wars for that type of science fiction. I loved Star Wars. Uh, never, never gotten. A, I tried Star Trek a few times. I think 
I think there's a period of wonderment where it's just amazing, and I, I think I missed that window pretty pretty hard uh, in order to get into it. I think the thing we can take from this is it's just amazing how gambling's everywhere, right? Yeah. I was. We were all talking about job security the other day, and I said as a joke, if you drop me in Uzbekistan with Airbnb now and the internet. And the way poker is, I probably could make a living and live out of there because there's so much poker everywhere. There's so much gambling everywhere. There's, mm -hmm. And people always want to get better, and they're always going to pay a guy. You'll always pay a guy 150 an hour if he can help you make a couple grand over the next few months. That seems like a pretty fair exchange. And it's just, I love... I love gambling, Barry. God, it's so it's great to be back in America too. There's so much of it. And there's so much money floating around, and I love hearing about it in Star Wars and everything. I feel like there's got to be more fiction about gambling, don't you think? Yeah. Like, yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love like a book like Rounders, like really crafted well, or even if it was just a dystopian novel in the future and gambling becomes a huge way for the lower classes to get out. I would think that'd be really fun, but yeah, enough, uh, enough geeking out. Thank you, Ami. Okay. And this question will allow Alex to get his teeth in it. Just looking at it. I think there's like technical stuff here. So I'm just going to read it out and it's from Steve. Hi, Alex. I'm a big fan of your podcasts and courses. Some time ago, I also had a lesson from you as I was starting off in MTTs. There is a great deal of complex material out there, but stripping it down to, re to reveal usable core takeaways is the real challenge which you manage to achieve. Keep up the good work. I think your That's approach... Sorry, Alex, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you just I said thank you, I yeah. Was like, <laughs> I thought you were just reading us like fan mail today. I was like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Save your thanks <laughs> for the end. Silence. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, th I think your approach to creating ranges and plays based on population reads is really helpful in MTTs, particularly given we often do not have reads on any given player to make a reliable read. With this in mind, could you talk in your podcast about population 3-bet ranges based on your work? Now, he goes into here, so I'm just going to read it, right? I'll read through okay. it in case there's something here that you're... What do the ranges look like at various stat depths and in various situations? For example, middle position versus early position, uh, button versus uh, cutoff, etc. Um, at, say, 100 big blinds plus 35 to 50 big blinds and 25 to 30. Beyond the percentage 3-bet figures, what do the ranges look like? I recently watched a good video on Run It Once by Julian Klansky which address recreational population tendencies, albeit in the context of full ring cash games. Now, let me read through here if there's anything here. The takeaway was the recreational population was 3-bet in a tightish linear range and was rarely folded to 4-bets. In this light, I do wonder whether some standard advice as how to how widely we should call 3-bets, even in position, but especially out of position, is too optimistic. As I recall, you have expressed the view that while calling three bets out of position can mitigate our losses by about one big blind, we are often in a reverse implied odds situation, and I agree with this. To fight for that one big blind, we often have to commit a low, a lot which makes sense in a strict uh, cash runner EV, I think that is, uh, cash game situation, but less so in an MTT context. 
Obviously, playing in position is a lot better, and I have done some modelling in Cardrunner's EV with what I assume population ranges look like, but would be interested to hear your thoughts, which will be based on much better information than my assumptions. What does your 3-bet call and 4-bet range look like? Readless in the various positions depths mentioned above. Thanks for writing in, Steve, but um, with a sore throat, that was hard to get through. Um, so. <laughs> I'm the one who's got to answer the question. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's uh, it. Let me get to points 1A through 18C <laughs> in this question first. Nah, but Steve, that's a really good question, and honestly, I'm really happy you asked it because if there is one topic I find endlessly fascinating, it is why the 3-bet is not used more in No Limit Hold'em. If you think about it, if you look at your big blind per hundred rate in the big blind, it's going to be something like negative 40, negative 50. By the way, if you folded every single big blind, you'd be negative 100, but it'll be negative 40, negative 50. If you're really good, it'll be 30. Subtle brag, I got it down to negative 15 at one point on Poker Stars. <laughs> back when I was obsessed with that. But that was really the first thing I got obsessed with is if you could save every big blind, well, then you could just coast in a tournament forever and get your flip, right? And hopefully you only need one flip as opposed to five, right? And uh, anywho, one of the things that I started noticing as I looked at everybody's big blind numbers because everybody is so infatuated with flatting from the big blind, it's become a real social faux pas to three bet from the big blind because we all just think it's so hunky dory to flat from the big blind now. Uh, and you know, God forbid you offend anyone at the poker table. It's really important to gain the acceptance of people who are 95% losers. Uh, when you flat from the big blind, you can't turn damn near anything profitable. But 80% of the people I look at flatting ace 10 out of position, uh, they're losing. Like, they're not losing a lot, but they're losing. They're like negative 10% of a big blind. And Ace-10 is like riding up into the top, uh, like 14% of hands, depending on how you do it, right? Even tighter than that, like 12, depending on how you do it. That means you're not making money with 9 out of 10 hands when you're in the big blind, and you call out of position, a larger bet. Well, what happens when somebody opens and you three bet and they call? Well, they just called out of position. And many times they don't have a hand near anywhere near as good as ace-ten. So this is what, and we'll bring this to, you were talking about population tendencies. Population tendencies, you always have to be very careful about talking about the averages. Uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Taleb Nicholas Nassim, Nassim the third, whatever. I can never remember if it's Nassim or Nicholas at first, but anyhow, the Lebanese gentleman makes this point where he says, if I told you I'm going to put your grandmother in a room that's an average of 80 degrees Fahrenheit for an hour, and you say yes, you just gave me permission to kill your grandma because I could put it at zero degrees for the first 30 minutes and 160 degrees for the next 30, and she's dead. At no point did it hit 80 degrees. And you can see this with everything in life. Whenever uh, I was laughing my ass off the other day, uh, I think Taleb pointed this out, but 
the New York Times published something about, oh, all this paleo stuff is stupid because back in the day, people lived an average of 40 years. Well, if half the people on Earth died within one year of birth, that's going to drag down the average quite a bit. But that, didn't, that doesn't mean people didn't live till they were 60 or 70. And you'll see this in a hundred things. You'll Google average salary of a job you want. Say you want to be a personal trainer. You Google average salary, it's going to say 50, 60K. Now that's BS because four out of five personal trainers wash out and they're going to be somewhere between 20 to 40K. And then one out of five is going to be amazing and is going to be up in the six figures. Nobody's making 50 to 60K. And one of the biggest ones you'll see is... Uh, one of the biggest things you'll see in No Limit Hold'em is people hold to their averages so much. And one of them is like you were discussing, you flat something out of position. And yeah, you do the Cardinal V calc. Uh, you look at your average when you flat a three bet out of position. And it says, well, if you raise preflop and you folded with your ace 10 off, you were negative 2.5 big blinds. But the distribution of that is flat. It's negative 2.5 on every trial because every hand ends right there when you fold. Whereas let's say it's negative 1.5. If you call, that sounds pretty good. However, you look at the distribution and you see, I have an average of 50 big blinds at any point in a tournament. And in most of these pots where I save the big blind and I win the pot, uh, it's like 10, 15 big blinds, which is helpful but going from 50 to 65 big blinds is not nearly as helpful as going from 50 to 22 big blinds is detrimental. And you'll notice the pots you lose out of position are much bigger because you cannot control the action or the pot size at all. Position is absolutely everything and no limit hold them. I used to always have this thing I would ask my students what percentage of the game is position? And they would say 20% or 40% or 60%. I'd say, no, it's the entire game. There is nothing else but position. And the way I tried to prove that and how to think like a poker player is I prove there are certain plays you can do with any two cards and you will make a profit. And it's all just position because what will happen is when you're in position and so the flop comes out, and somebody has a high card, generally with high cards, people fold out of position. And if they fold their high cards, they're folding like 50% of the time. And a half pot size C-bet needs to work 33% of the time. That is an incredible margin of error. You don't really need much of a hand there. Whereas if you're out of position, so many things have to go well for you. If you lead out there, you need to lead three streets. Otherwise, you check and cap your range at any point. If you check call, you cap your range as well. And unsurprisingly, when people know you have one pair or worse, they play pretty well. It's pretty easy to play poker. So one of the things I've noticed is flatting three bets out of position is you're going to have to do it as you move up because there will be guys that three bet you constantly. But there's a lot of times I think you should just four bet the first time he does it. And if it doesn't work, like, well... You were probably even money, maybe slightly negative on it. But now for the rest of the day, a lot of these guys won't three bet bluff you again, right? And I'm almost, I'm almost with it on that. The other thing is, going into the distributions, 90 plus percent 
of players in your local tournament will three bet without moving all in 6% or less in a half. That's 10 plus, ace, queen plus. And many of them will not even three bet the 10s or the ace, queen. You think about it, at the beginning of the tournament, someone opens under the gun. Many guys won't three bet queens. That's because if the guy four bets, oh Jesus Christ, what do I do? And the funny thing being, I, I don't, Many times in Nolan and Holden, people put themselves in an uncomfortable situation. They go, because this felt uncomfortable and must have been wrong. But that's not true. If you look at any distribution of profits, a three bet will always be superior to a flat. If you're flatting with a hand, trying to hit the flop, you are gambling. That is no different than spinning the roulette wheel and calling for red. If you flat with 10s, hoping to see a 10 on the flop, or you will not continue, that is called gambling. Three-betting, creating your own luck, all the money from No Limit Hold'em comes when there's no showdown because then there's no gambling involved. It doesn't matter what cards you have. If you're not creating those situations, I don't know how you expect to make money out of this. 90, 95% of guys will three-bet 4% of the hands, 5% of the hands, 6% of the hands. So... When they three-bet you, they generally have it, okay? If you're like, if the three-bet is really small or you're super deep, you want to take a flyer, show that you can flat a three-bet, okay, but you can just mock most of the time. That's fine. You don't have to do it right away. There's a thing in baseball where you will never, ever get a call overturned in baseball unless the manager challenges it, right? And there's a lot of times, oh, and there's certain decisions that can't be repealed, but you will argue with the umpire because you want him to see he made a mistake, and you're hoping later on in the game he's going to get you back, right? He's going to help you out. There's going to be something on the line that's going to go your way. So you plead your case. A lot of times you do the same thing when you get caught, opening a little bit too much and not defending versus the three bet. You leave your case for seven, 13 seconds, whatever it is, right? But you're not trying to get involved there out of position because if you look at all the money you're losing out of position, I mean, all the money you're losing in Nolan and Hold'em, it's all in your big blind. It's all in your small blind. That is like literally look at your position filter on Hold'em Manager Look where your losses are. They are all in the big blind and small blind. What do those hands have in common? You are almost always out of position. If you would like to keep entering in that spot where you are losing and no limit hold'em, be my guest. I will not be joining you. However, when I am in position, it's like final jeopardy, and I know the answer to, I know the topic backwards and forwards. I want as much money on the line when I'm on the button, cutoff, or hijack as possible. Because no one's going to, everybody's terrible at four-bet bluffing. When, when a guy four-bet bluffs me when I'm three-betting a lot, I almost want to clap and go, I'm proud of you, buddy. Good for you. But it doesn't happen. And that's the thing. If you raise six for suiting on the button and the guy calls you in the big blind with ace-nine offsuit, your six for suited is showing a greater profit than ace-nine off. And yet people will consent 
to opening any damn thing they please, and then flatting out of position, not realizing the second they flat, unless they're willing, as Riyard's Nobles and I were talking about, the check raise has to be like 70% of the time, or you have to be donk leading the size of the pot, or you have to be doing some form of reversal. If you're just calling and hoping to hit, you are going to lose. You might not lose as much as if you open, but you're still losing. I don't know why losing by a few less points is something everybody's clapping themselves on the back for. And the funny thing is, why do people three-bet the button when the cutoff opens? They originally used to do that because the cutoff was opening 20% of the hand, and they were susceptible to being three-bet. However, even if you go back uh, to the early days, of poker education. You'll see in some of the earliest books written about poker, they'll, they'll be talking about if the under the gun is opening 15% of the time and you three-bet him and he calls you with this range, he's going to be missing 56% of the time on these kinds of boards. That's a lot of folding. And you know what? People are not opening 15% of the hands from under the gun. I, there's a lot of guys that open 22. There's a lot of guys that open 20% from every position. But they won't three bet in position because they're worried about somebody coming in from behind, which no, does not happen. Or they're just afraid of looking stupid. I had a guy laugh in my face one time because he was opening every damn thing under the gun. I three bet him in middle position with some POS, I can't remember what it was. Anyway, I got caught on the bluff, and you know, the whole table got together to deride me, and I, you almost at that point, you just want to open the laptop and go, like, look, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 72 hours to come back here with your database, uh, I'll, I'll give you 72 hours to do a card runner's EV, not even that, let's just bring back your, your uh, database, let's, Let's show you're making money with Ace-10 offsuit there. Just show me. Just show me. There's a whole lot of what's popular in poker, and there's a whole lot less of what actually works. And I, I think one of the things you've got to go out there and do is, because the other thing is people are not stupid. Their subconscious does become trained to habits. And think about it. If every single time a guy gets three-bet, he usually looks at tens, jacks, queens, kings, or aces from the beginning of the tournament until when, what, the pros who are three-betting all the time who seem to get deep, huh? But for the first 80% of the tournament, the three-bet is just always tens, jacks, queens, kings, aces. What do you think they're going to think when you three-bet them? The other thing is everybody's three-bet at the beginning of tournaments when nobody is suspicious is nothing compared to deep in tournaments when everybody is suspicious and has a four-bet jamming stack. I make a profit with any two cards as an average, but in general, if you look over the distribution, it's pretty good. And if you look at it, I'm making a profit with every little divided category. I make money with damn near anything when I three-bet and you flat out a position. More than nine guys out of ten, I'm taking the task when I do that. The best time in the tournament for me to do that is at the beginning of the tournament. 
because people do not want to four bet even with kings at the beginning of the tournament when there's a hundred x. Because if they get five bet, they're gonna go, oh no, oh no, oh no. So I'm always the guy who's derided at every poker tournament. I'm out in the first three levels, or I'm there for four days. Everybody else is killing themselves in Vegas, uh, making all these day twos with 14 big blinds and just missing the money or barely men cashing. I'm seeing movies. I'm going to the Pinball Hall of Fame. And I really think that's the right strategy. Uh, good luck to you, Steve. Okay. Uh, do you have time for one more question, Alex? I think you do. I always got time for you, Barry. Let's do it. Okay, let's do this one. Um, this one's from Hayes. And it is, okay, so we bet for value. We're betting to get a worse hand to call. So betting aces on an ace-king-7 rainbow board is obvious value. But is betting king-10 into that board for value? With a backdoor flush, would that be... How about betting 10-7 suited into that board? Um, that's all he says. Okay. Uh, him and I actually talked yesterday, uh, just via computer, and uh, I felt really old as I said that, via the Google. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, uh, How many other men are you speaking to that you're not telling me about? <laughs> <laughs> when were you going to uh, tell me about this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, anywho, what the big thing that is really hard to explain. I had uh, I, I had a student of mine. I don't know if he wants me to say his name. He's from Greece. Very bright guy. He sent me a thing saying, like, when you bet here. You're only getting value from 30% of his range on the turn. Why are you betting there? And I was like, that's a damn good question. I'll tell you why that is. When you Actually, I don't think I ever responded to him because I'm cool like that. But anyhow, now I'm telling him a scant seven months later. Anywho, <laughs> when you have one pair, the most important thing to think of, this is from how, this is a preview of how to think like a poker player because we talk about most important thought in there all the time. The most important thing to think of with one pair is how do I not cap my range? Another way to put that is how do I not check and leave him a move? Because what I should have done with my friend, but I think I was between like 20 different things, right? So I was like, oh, I'll answer that later, and then it's just gone into the ether, which is the stupidest thing you can do. But... The thing I always like to show is, like, I go, okay, set up your card on CV. Now check the turn with your... So let's say you got that 10-7 suited on ace-king-7, right? You bet flop. He calls. Now you could either bet really small to buy the showdown on the turn, or you can check, right? I'm like, well, first figure out the bet on the turn, right? And they go, well, it doesn't show... I mean, like, the whole hand is slightly plus EV now, but actually that bet is negative EV. I'm like, yeah, okay. So we're, we're plus EV if we bet here, right? Right, okay, good. Now I want you to look at the conditions on this. What do you see? Well, if he's got pairs, he's going to call. Most guys won't raise ace-jack on an ace-king-seven board on the turn, right? And uh, 
he's got a setter. He walked his himself into a two pair. He's going to raise. And if he's got nothing, he's going to fold. And if he's got a few of these weaker sevens, he's going to call, right? His eight, seven suited, seven, six suited, seven, five suited, which everybody plays now because nobody folds a damn thing. Anyway, and uh, it's like, okay, so, yeah, it's not actually making money, but, like, I know what he's doing on this turn. And then on the river, I'm like, okay, what's his checking range? And it's like, oh, it's like 99% of his hands. It's like, what, if, what does he lead when he leads? Well, most guys, you can confirm this with population tendencies, most guys, like, donk lead the river is, like, 2%. And it's like, literally, I hit my flush. That's it, right? And, okay, this is all really predictable, and even though this turn bet isn't profitable, we're, we're plus EV on the hand, and we got ourselves out of a hairy situation. I'm like, okay, now back it up to the turn. Now let's check the turn. Now compute the river. And I go, Alex, I can't. Why? Because I don't know what he's betting. I know! Everybody bets different on the river. If you want to see the widest spectrum of possibilities you have ever seen in your life, look at river betting ranges after you check the turn. It is all over the damn place. There is no uh, database analysis, analytic reversal I can come up with because some guys will lead their entire range. Some guys will check pairs, bet their missed flush draws, and bet their best hands. Some guys will turn certain hands into a bluffs correctly, check some pairs, bet some better hands, and bet a few flush draws to balance their range. It is all over the place. And there are other guys, most guys will just bet for value, and my students will call, and I'll pull my hair out and cry. But I say, like, yeah, if you're a badass no-limit hold'em player, and you know you've had this guy back on the ropes the entire day, and you know he's just going to lead out there with any piece of crap he called with on the flop, there are times to check the turn and collect on the river. That that should be a considerable percentage of your range, but I'm not trying to get you to play your first round at Augusta. I'm, I'm trying to get you just to lay it up on the green a few times first. Most of you guys are just starting out, and the way you start it out is a little chip shot bet on the, on the flop and on the turn. So let's say you have like 10-7. You're in position, right? You should always be in position. <clears throat> Let's say you got 10-7. Well, there's no law that says you can't bet 25% of the pot on the flop. Or 30%. And what's going to happen when you do that is they should raise you with pairs, but guess what? Nobody does. For the same reason nobody likes to four-bet queens at the beginning of a tournament anymore, because if they see a five-bet, they cry inwardly. If somebody check-raises ace-jack and then they get three-bet, they... It, it's really an entitlement tilt, right? They know their hand most likely isn't good anymore, but I vomited all over my keyboard, or I wanted to vomit all over my keyboard. Translation, I'm entitled. I didn't want to fold this hand, so I called. So what most guys do is they're going to call you with their entire range. They're going to raise the same things they were raising, which is a couple pairs, uh, two pairs, excuse me, plus. And uh, a lot of high cards they're going to call with now. Maybe Jack-10, you wouldn't call half-pot. But if the guy bets a quarter pound, like, okay, yeah, all right. Queen-10, yeah, okay. Jack-9 suited with backdoor flusher, all right. Okay. Fours? Maybe I just don't like you. Okay, I call. This stupid bet. And then you bet a, a real small on the turn, and they go, this guy's a real dumbass. Right? 
They call again. Well, you just... All you wanted to do was not check and say, I have one pair of misdraw. Because you, your opponents are going to play very well when they know what you have. Believe it or not. And if you're out of position, you're going to see you have quite the problem. Because now you got to bet flop, turn, and river... And it's going to be really hard to sequence those bets in a way that it's not painfully obvious you got a pair. And it's going to be very difficult to make that not a large pot. So what ends up happening is, let's say I have the 10-7 on ace-king-7. I will put that into my checking range a very high percentage of the time. And most guys will not double barrel as a bluff. So I'll check. The guy will bet. I'll call. And if he bets the turn... You think about it, when was the last time you bet twice with queen-10 queen on an ace-king-7-2 board? No, when the guy check calls, it's like, well, he's got an ace. Okay, he's probably not folding. So, and if it, most of the time, if you fold to the turn bet, you're never going to get into a tough situation. All the money you have ever lost in every poker tournament in your entire life has been one pair out of position. I guarantee it. If you just want to avoid that spot and just collect every time and you're in position, I think you're going to win more tournaments than you deserve. I think you can be as dumb as a box of rocks and you'll still be making a lot of money from poker tournaments. Because I watch dynamite player after dynamite player, even in the WCP main event, just not accept, get filled with entitlement tilt that just perhaps this player, who's half the player they are, just has a hand. When they're out of position, so they play this guessing game for three streets, and then, holy word I can't say, 40 big blinds? Your win rate is 10 big blinds per 100 and. It takes you two and a half hours to play 100 and live. That's 10 hours of work you just pissed away. Why? Because you're not mad enough to accept, I, I don't know what to do here. Every successful investor... You've ever heard in your life interviewed and said, I really screw up a lot. I just cook it in to make sure that I don't do a big screw up, right? Diversification, a lot of index funds, a lot of, a lot of accounting for how dumb I can be, right? Those are the richest people on earth going like, yeah, I, I make mistakes, so I try to figure it out, right? And then, you know, us. Wrangling together 50 bucks to play a local tournament of Binion's. Oh, no, we got it figured out, bro. We can do it. And, I mean, I guess this goes back to uh, people want to turn poker into this romantic thing of I like to look at a guy and know if he's got it or not. Well, I'm not good at that. And you know what? I've done a lot of analysis. I don't think many people are good at that. 99 times out of 100, a guy tells me he's got good instincts. There is absolutely no evidence to support that when I look through his hands. He might have gotten lucky with one big hero call. And then the other 50 times I pull up a hero call, it's like, oh boy. Oh boy. Good thing that one hero call was at a final table. The vast majority of professionals make their money by folding one pair they don't know what to do with out of position. You can do the same thing very easily, very effectively. And again, this isn't a perfect... This is why when people tell you you got to bet for value or you got to bet for bluff, 
as a bluff. I don't know if they're considering it's a three-streak game when you do that. And a lot of times you're actually accepting a slightly negative investment because to check puts you in a category of unknowns that you could never figure out. And I hope that all makes sense. Thank you for your question. Okay, and that's all we have time for this week. Alex, how can people get in touch with you for information about your webinars and other products you have for sale and also your fabulous newsletter that keeps coming to my inbox? <laughs> Barry, Barry and I just had a technical difficulty, so you can kind of, if you guys play it back, you can hear Barry subtly trying to punch something as he says that. <laughs> and that lovely newsletter I get every day. Yeah, there's, there's been a few technical issues and uh, stuff, but I've listened back and I think it's fine. There might be a few like random noises and stuff. I don't know. I think when it crashes, it interferes, you know, with the recording as well. But everything, I had a quick, quick feed through it there and it all seems fine. So, yeah, uh, good. No, but, we're good uh, to go. Anyway, if you guys want to get in touch with me, uh, write me at alexandpokerheadrush.com. You can sign up for my newsletter by going to pokerheadrush.com, which is my old blog. And you can go to the top right and just put in your email address and get a very beautiful newsletter sent to you almost every day. Free articles, strategy videos, and podcasts. Uh, oh, my. And, uh, yeah, check out the free video associated with How to Think Like a Poker Player. It's still on sale right now. A uh, few people have helped me keep it on sale. So, yeah, while it's still on sale, check that out, and you can still pick it up for 60% off instead of 200 It's at $79.99. And if you just want to check out a free one-hour theory video on how to play better po poker, go ahead and check it out. Lots of free content there. Follow me on Twitter, at The Assassinato. Check out my classic training videos, new classic training videos, at Tournament Poker Edge. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Yeah. And keep your questions coming in for Alex, questions at oneouter.com, or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group, and we will get them read out. I'm off to throw my computer out the window, <laughs> and uh, we'll get this uploaded for tonight. It'll still be out Thursday, by hell or high water. Yep. Alex, thanks very much for joining us. It's good to be back. Good to get another one in the can and ready for the for the fans that are left. And uh, <laughs> we will see we will see you next week. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with $1 million on the table every week. Yes, $1 million guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1 million guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.